of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. You're listening to part two of Unexplained's season five, episode three, Endgame. After the second apparent serious assault on Cindy in her home, though some in the force were beginning to seriously doubt her credibility, attention turned briefly again to Dr. Roy Makepeace. In the following days, he was pulled in for extensive questioning. During an intense six-hour interview, Makepeace conceded that he had physically hurt Cindy in the past, but would never think of doing anything remotely like what appeared to have been done to her. It was then suggested by Makepeace that maybe someone connected to Cindy's line of work, being as she was a carer for troubled children, had been responsible. An angry relative of one of the children, perhaps. His theory wasn't pursued. In June 1983... Cindy's private investigator, Ozzy Caban, was alerted to another break-in at Cindy's home. After racing to her apartment, he found a deeply upset Cindy poring over yet another distressing note that she'd apparently received. As she explained, she'd returned home after work earlier that day to find the back door left open again. Hearing her dog Heidi whimpering in pain from inside, she rushed in to find her badly beaten and tied up to the kitchen table. She found the note next to Heidi. It read, Last day's warning, death, happy birthday, Cindy. Cindy's birthday was June 14th. It was more evidence to Caban that her attacker was someone she knew. Then, late one evening in July, 
a resident of West 33rd Avenue in Vancouver, some two miles away from Cindy's apartment, heard what sounded like someone trying to get in through their front door. Keeping the chain on the latch, he pulled the door open and was startled to find a distressed and disorientated woman stumbling about on his doorstep, clawing at something tied tightly around her neck. It was Cindy. When police received the call that Cindy had been attacked again, Detective David Boyer-Smythe was swiftly dispatched to investigate. Ozzy Caban was also quick to arrive on the scene. Cindy had told Caban earlier that night that she was heading out to Dunbar Park, located between West 31st and 33rd Avenue, just a few blocks from where she was found, to take Heidi for a walk. They'd been there roughly 30 minutes before she decided to head home. It was while walking westwards on 33rd Avenue that a dark green van with a blurred-out window apparently pulled up alongside her. Though she couldn't be sure, she believed there were two figures in the front, one she described as a white, bearded male, and the other, a female, also white, with long, blonde hair. The driver had asked for directions, and the next thing she knew, she was being dragged somewhere, before later coming to in some bushes by the side of the road. When Caban and Boya Smythe first arrived to speak with Cindy, she appeared unusually drowsy, as if she'd been drugged and had twigs and leaves wedged inside her trousers. Her dog Heidi was nowhere to be seen. Caban would find her later, wandering around aimlessly a few blocks away. As perplexed as ever, Detective Boya Smythe headed straight out to Dunbar Community Centre car park and promptly located Cindy's car where she said it would be. Next, he made his way to the spot where she claimed she was momentarily abducted. The detective flicked on his flashlight and shone it toward the ground, moving it about in the dark as the occasional car drove by on the road behind him. He suddenly came to a stop. There, under the light of the torch, he saw what appeared to be recently made drag marks in the dirt as if a body had been suddenly dragged off the pavement at that precise spot. It was enough to convince Detective Boya Smythe to have Cindy's case passed up to the RCMP Major Crimes Unit. For Cindy's family and friends, it seemed like the police were now beginning to take her claims more seriously, giving them reason to hope that they might finally start to get some solid answers. But things were only about to get even more peculiar. Grey clouds hang low in the sky. She is standing by the water's edge on a mild summer's day as a light rain begins to fall. Roy is with her. They are getting into a boat and pushing off from Thormanby Island, a small island located just off the mainland, about 40 miles west of Vancouver. Now they are dropping anchor somewhere. Buccaneer Bay, she thinks, a small cove on the northwest shore of South Thormanby. At least, that's where they stayed on the first night of the trip. It was January 1985, and Cindy is sitting with her eyes closed in the office of hypnotherapist Cal Booker, recounting a trip she'd taken with her husband back in July of 1981. 
The sessions had been Ozzy Caban's idea and had begun in August, three weeks after the last apparent attack on Cindy. Frustrated by the police's inability to make any inroads into identifying a perpetrator, Caban had suggested visiting a hypnotherapist to see if it might jog her memory and help provide more information about her assailants. At the first session, Cindy added that she had in fact been dragged into the van and injected in the arm by the man, who on reflection she thought might have been wearing a mask at the time. She also described how her blouse had been ripped in the assault and how she'd heard one of the attackers use the word hembagosh, an Afrikaans word which translates to be careful in English. Something Cindy had heard her estranged husband Roy use on many occasions. In the second session, Cindy provided a more detailed description of the van, but little else. And that's how things would have ended had Cindy not got in touch with Caban a few weeks later, claiming to be suffering from apparent nightmares and flashbacks that she thought might relate to something horrific she'd experienced, but had since suppressed. In January 85, Caban took Cindy to see Cal Booker again to find out what the flashbacks might relate to. Detective Boya Smythe and Staff Sergeant Chris Bjornerud from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police accompanied them. It is fair to say that nobody was quite prepared for what happened next. Cindy's regression continued. The day after arriving on Thormanby Island had been a sunny one, so she and Roy decided to have a barbecue and just spend the day relaxing outside. Their friend, old Joe, even stops by to join them. That's good, said Booker. Now, what happened on the Wednesday? Cindy seemed to hesitate for a moment. Go on, Booker urged again. They set off early, she says, with Roy rowing the boat again. There is fishing gear with them now. She doesn't know where they're going. Something about a property that Roy wants to take a look at, but she doesn't want to go, doesn't know what they need another property for. But Roy insists. They turn left out of the bay, when she'd expected them to go right. She hasn't been this way before. Cindy shifted in the chair and seemed to grow more and more uncomfortable. They're approaching a different island now, she says, not one she recognises, and draw up to a log jetty of some sort. A wooden cabin lies just off the water. There are some other houses dotted about, but not much else. Roy tells her to stay in the boat as he steps onto the jetty and heads toward the cabin closest to them. It has a log roof and a small front porch. She feels anxious, left alone in the boat. She calls out to Roy, but he doesn't reply. And now she is stepping off the boat and making her way toward the cabin. She knocks on the door, suddenly feeling a little silly. Roy is nowhere to be seen. She tries the handle and finds the door unlocked. She pushes it open. And, said Booker, what did you see inside? Caban and the two officers inch forward in anticipation. No, I can't, said Cindy, her face screwing up in horror. But you must, said Booker. 
Cindy, her eyes still tightly closed, continued. There are two bodies on the floor, a man and a woman I don't recognise, and blood everywhere. Roy is standing over the bodies. He has a knife in his hand. He is angry. As Cindy then went on to detail, at this point she ran out of the cabin, grabbed the porch rail and vomited over the side. The next thing she knew, she was running to the boat with Roy chasing after her, demanding that she listen to him. Then he hit her across the face, she said, telling her to calm down. She then claimed to see more blood and an axe swinging down, embedding into something she couldn't see, and Roy telling her that her mother and sisters would be next if she ever told anyone. And then they were back on the water, hauling two large bags from out of the boat and throwing them overboard. Booker brought the session to an end. Caban and the detectives sat back in astonishment. By the end of that afternoon session, Cindy had effectively implicated her estranged husband Roy in the murder and dismemberment of two unknown individuals. This startling and unexpected revelation seemed to provide investigators with two possible insights into Cindy's situation. On the one hand, if Makepeace had indeed committed a murder, it stood to reason that he could also be Cindy's mysterious attacker. On the other hand, if Cindy had been doing it all to herself, the revelation of this trauma was at the very least a potential explanation for such bizarre behaviour. There remained, of course, the possibility that Cindy's recollection of her trip to Thormanby Island was deliberately fabricated. But perhaps most complicated of all, there was also the possibility that Cindy's story was in fact just a symbolic and metaphorical expression of her feelings toward her estranged husband, as opposed to a literal account of a horrific event. Either way, having given her account of the trip, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police investigators had little choice but to look into it further. As it transpired, Cindy had indeed gone on a trip to Thormanby Island with her husband around the time in question. However, as investigators soon discovered, they'd also been joined by her sister Melanie, who had no memory of anything untoward taking place. A few days later, Cindy was back on a boat in Buccaneer Bay, this time accompanied by Ozzy Caban and a Sergeant Ferguson as they searched for the cabin on the small island that she'd depicted under hypnosis. Despite spending the best part of the day searching for it, however, it remained elusive. Roy Makepeace was once again brought in for questioning, outraged that they would take Cindy's story seriously enough to quiz him about it. Again, police find nothing incriminating. Afterwards, Makepeace makes the decision to cut all ties with Cindy for good, and the police are once again left empty-handed. Green Chef is a USDA-certified organic company that makes eating well, easy and affordable, with plans to fit every kind of lifestyle. With Green Chef, it's easy to eat well and discover new recipes every week that you'll love to cook, with meal plans that include paleo, plant-powered, keto and balanced living. One of the things I often struggle with is finding the time and energy after a long day of work to put together a meal that is genuinely part of a healthy, balanced diet. With Green Chef, I don't have to worry. 
Green Chef's expert chefs design quick and easy flavorful recipes with step-by-step instructions, chef tips, and photos to guide you along. Green Chef is also the most sustainable meal kit, offsetting 100% of its direct carbon emissions and plastic packaging in every box. So not only can you enjoy what you're eating, but you can also feel good about how it got to your table. Use code UNEXPLAINED80 to get $80 off your first month plus free shipping on your first box. Go to greenchef.com forward slash unexplained80 to redeem and for more details. Once again, that's unexplained80 to get $80 off your first month plus free shipping on your first box. Go to greenchef.com forward slash unexplained80 to redeem and for more details. In the months following Cindy's shocking hypnotherapy sessions, her mental health deteriorated significantly. Though it's important to state that there was absolutely zero physical evidence linking Roy Makepeace to any murder or any of the attacks that Cindy supposedly endured, what can't be ascertained is to what degree she really believed it had happened. In June 1985, Cindy was rushed to hospital having overdosed on pills in an apparent suicide attempt. She was subsequently diagnosed with depression and moved to Vancouver's Lionsgate Hospital for her own protection and put on a course of antidepressants. With police yet to rule Makepeace out entirely as a suspect to a possible murder, they arranged to have Cindy call him up so they could listen in while she asked him about what exactly took place on their 1981 trip to Thormanby Island. When she did... Makepeace accused Cindy of being insane and denied everything. Both Cindy and Makepeace were then placed under 24-hour police surveillance for the next seven days, during which Cindy claimed her phone lines were cut again. The police, however, saw nothing incriminating. The next few months were relatively incident-free, though Cindy continued to report a number of threatening calls and yet another sinister note, this time in the form of a book with a nylon stocking placed inside it. Though Cindy continued to confide in her friends about it all, there were hopes that the worst might now be behind her. On a freezing cold day in early December, a resident cycling through the university endowment lands, some six miles west of Cindy's house, spotted a woman lying unconscious in a ditch. Rushing to help, the cyclist was horrified to find a black nylon stocking tied tightly around the woman's neck. One of her feet was exposed, while on the other she wore a large work boot, while on her hands she wore only one glove. When the woman eventually came round, she confirmed she was Cindy Makepeace. She claimed not to remember anything of the attack. Following what was by then a fourth apparent violent attack, Cindy was sent for a consultation with Dr Anthony Marcus, a forensic psychiatrist with the University of British Columbia. After a couple of meetings, Marcus came to the devastating conclusion that Cindy was indeed her own stalker, as many in the police force had come to suspect. However, it wasn't simply that she was deliberately faking the attacks or lying about the phone calls he suggested. Instead, it was his belief that Cindy was intermittently falling in and out of a psychogenic fugue state. If this were the case, she would have no recollection of what she was doing to herself, and as a result, 
have every reason to believe that she really was being attacked. According to Dr. Marcus's diagnosis, this could well have been brought on as a consequence of a severe trauma that Cindy had previously suffered. Though close friends and family, as well as her private investigator, Ozzy Caban, remained convinced that Cindy truly was being attacked, for many in the police, Marcus's assessment was effectively the end of the matter. Dr. Marcus also suggested to Cindy that they begin regular therapy sessions to treat the condition, but she declined the offer because she was already visiting a therapist at the time. Dr. Connolly, her regular therapist, was more sympathetic to the idea that Cindy was genuinely under attack from an unknown assailant. In April 1986, feeling somewhat abandoned by the police and more fearful for her life than ever, Cindy invited her good friends Agnes and Tom Woodcock to stay the night with her. They were just settling down to sleep when Cindy burst into their room in a panic. Together they ran downstairs to find with horror that the basement was on fire. As Cindy yelled for someone to call the fire service, Agnes ran to the phone, but when she tried to use it, the line was completely dead. When Tom then ran out to alert the neighbours, he spotted a figure in the shadows, seemingly watching the house from across the street. But when Tom called out to them for help, the figure simply turned and ran off into the darkness. Later that evening, with the fire safely extinguished, RCMP investigators found a possible point of entry for an intruder, a bathroom window that looked to have been forced open. On closer inspection, however, it was determined to have been forced open from the inside. That, coupled with the discovery of liquid accelerant all over the basement carpet, led them to conclude that Cindy was the culprit. A check on Dr. Roy Makepeace's whereabouts was made just in case, but he was found to be in South Africa at the time. Only two weeks previously, Agnes and Tom had been staying at Cindy's home when her burglar alarm was triggered. Cindy was sat playing cards with them at the time. When they went to investigate, they found that part of the basement door's glass window had been completely removed. After the fire, Cindy's misery was compounded when her insurance company refused to pay up for the damages and she was served an eviction notice from her property. Despite everything, throughout it all, Cindy had continued her work at Blenheim House, which many believe was one of the few positives that Cindy had to hold on to. However, on the advice of her therapist, Dr. Connolly, Cindy took a six-month leave of absence from work and was committed to St. Paul's Psychiatric Hospital in Vancouver. While at St. Paul's, Cindy was assessed by a number of psychologists who, although unsure of the correct diagnosis, all came to a similar conclusion to Dr. Anthony Marcus that Cindy had effectively manufactured her own stalker. After two months, Cindy was deemed well enough to be released, and in September 1987, she moved to a property on Claysmith Road in Richmond. With her divorce from Roy now finalised, Cindy changed her name from Makepeace to James. With Cindy's life appearing to have stabilised, she was dealt a huge blow when she was asked to resign from her job at Blenheim House. Some claimed it was due to poor performance, 
while others believed she was unfairly maligned after details about her medical history were leaked to her superiors. Though distraught at having to leave the job she loved, Cindy confided in friends that at the very least, perhaps now she'd finally hit rock bottom, her stalker might leave her alone. Rather than wallow in it all, incredibly, Cindy fought hard to turn her life around, and after enrolling again in a series of nursing courses, she managed to secure a new job the following year at Richmond General Hospital. And by the summer of 1988, over a year had gone by without a sinister incident, as a refreshed and hopeful Cindy revelled in the freedom of her new life. For a moment, it seemed the distresses of the past were finally behind her. But all that was about to change. You've been listening to Unexplained Season 5, Episode 2, Endgame, Part 2 of 3. The third and final part will be released next Friday, October 9th. If you enjoy Unexplained and would like to help support us, you can now do so via Patreon. To receive access to ad-free episodes, discount on merchandise, as well as brand new video and audio content exclusive to Patreon members, just go to patreon.com forward slash unexplained pod to sign up. Or if you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can go to unexplainedpodcast.com forward slash support. All donations, no matter how large or small, are greatly appreciated. Unexplained the book and audiobook, featuring 10 stories that have never before been covered on the show, is now available to buy worldwide. You can purchase through Amazon, Barnes & Noble and Waterstones, among other bookstores. All elements of Unexplained, including the show's music, are produced by me, Richard McLean Smith. Please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts, and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can reach us online at unexplainedpodcast.com or Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplained podcast. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity.
With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to reuse hotels and resorts and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com.